Hey everybody, this is Tom Salami. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. This episode is sponsored by PSN Labs. We'll hear a little bit more from PSN throughout the podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to have Mike Mahoney, the CEO of Boston Scientific, as our interview. I've been hoping to talk to him for a long time. This is his debut on the podcast. Definitely worth the wait. I think the uh, conversation was jam-packed. We talked about uh, his move to Boston Scientific, uh, changes that were done to the culture, uh, other lessons learned, uh, opportunities they pursued, opportunities they didn't pursue. Uh, so it was uh, Mike was uh, upfront and honest, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the talk, and I'm sure you will too. Before we get into this episode, I just wanted to give you a few housekeeping items. Number one, I will be on vacation next week, so there is no Device Talks Weekly coming your way next Friday. However, we will be releasing a new episode of the Intuitive Talks podcast. So that's coming out on Friday. Once again, if you're subscribed to the Device Talks Podcast Network, you'll receive that Intuitive Talks podcast. If uh, you're not subscribed, you won't see that or future episodes of this Device Talks Weekly podcast sent to your phone. So please subscribe. uh, And that way you don't miss a thing. We'll also have a Striker Talks in a couple of weeks. I had delay on my end. And uh, we just put out a Medtronic Talks uh, yesterday. And uh, I spoke with Greg Smith, the head of supply chain at Medtronic. So uh, great conversation. Really happy to talk to Greg. I'm actually, I've been hoping to talk to him for a long time as well. So I have him and Mike Mahoney within the same same week. So uh, I'm feeling pretty good as I go into vacation. So a few more things. Uh, Speaking of supply chain, we will have a Device Talks Tuesdays on July 12th, brought to you by Sunrise Labs. The title is Electronics Supply Chain Overcoming Challenges and Risks. So make sure you register for that. You can watch that live or on demand. And finally, Device Talks West is taking place October 19th and 20th. You can register for that at devicetalks.com. We'll be uh, updating the agenda and speaker lists uh, very soon. So uh, keep checking devicetalks.com, but uh, register now. Avoid the rush. It's going to be worth it, I promise. All right, well, before we begin this podcast episode, I want to bring in our sponsor, PSN Labs. I had an interview with Michael Alibrand, the president of PSN Labs. In this clip, I asked Michael to tell us about PSN Labs. Let's listen. PSN is an interesting organization that has primarily four main areas of business. We do your classical engineering services, which is your ideation, your design development, your analysis type work. We have a processing lab. Uh, catered towards polymer components mostly, where we do injection molding, extrusion, do a lot of development, R&D design type activities in in that processing lab. Then we have a polymers test lab, which can essentially characterize any material and in particular data that you'd find on a classical material data sheet. And then our fastest area of growth is in biocompatibility. So doing tests like extractables and leachables, or essentially understanding the end building materials of construction to make sure they're suitable for uh, patient safety. So we have clients that use individual areas of those business, but more often than not, we have a a client like an OEM that wants to do development and they realize they can get all services under the same roof. So if you contract with us early, we can help you through that design development process, help you spec the materials, that ultimately are gonna be tested at the end to make sure that they're patient safety. Tom, I can't tell you how many times we'll have clients come to us where they've done years of legwork, 
all because they picked the wrong material for the application, then it fails in their biocompatibility testing. All right, we'll hear a little more from PSN Labs later in the podcast. If you want more information now, go to psnlabs.com. Now let's get this podcast started. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Chris Newmarker, how are you, sir? <laughs> Good to be here, Tom. Hey, looking forward to the weekend, man. It's going to be great. Yeah, no, we've got a, uh, the fourth coming up. I'm going to be on vacation next week. Yeah. So I've already told folks that at the top of the podcast. So uh, just uh, actually taking separate vacations, spending the week uh, with my 12-year-old at home while my wife takes my older son to go look at colleges. So oh, that uh, sounds it's going to be fun. Got some good quality sun time with my- That's uh, awesome. Yeah, yeah, good time. And then are you later, binge something with them? Are you gonna binge a probably show? Probably be binging. Uh, I'm thinking maybe Minions might come through. And I was 12, but oh, still yeah. love the Minions. Gotta love the Minions. Bob's Burgers movie yeah. might happen. Who knows? Museum of Science. Nice. Sky's the limit. Sky that great. is the limit. Wow. Yeah. The, the, the streaming services are offering you a wealth of content. To, uh, <laughs> no, we would go to actual theaters for that. But uh, yeah, there's yeah. opportunities on streaming as well. And of course, that's awesome. The fence isn't going to uh, going to paint itself. So I'll probably get to that as well. So nah, fence good, can wait. Good, fence good, <laughs> good we plan. So awesome uh before we get into new markers newsmakers i did want to thank everyone who uh gave me a shout out on linkedin yesterday device talks posted it was my birthday thank you to everyone who noticed and liked it and everything and uh had a great day with the family yesterday did i miss it did i miss the linkedin what the heck i need you to, like follow I, subscribe I, I me you. or device talks are you are you like to follow of course well, i, I don't do know. you miss it then i, just, I don't know I, I was so busy just like interacting with, uh, you know, all my and collecting fans. the news because you've <laughs> yeah, collecting yeah, the news. Yeah, yeah. Collect, I mean, it takes you at least a day and a half to get these new markers, newsmakers together. Right. Must. Oh, yeah. It's just like, you know, like collecting, you know, it's like it, it's it's like going mushroom picking, you know, <laughs> and like you really had to find the finest out there, you know, and, you know, like, you know, like like finding a moral mushroom or, or exactly. something, you know, yeah. like it's exactly, yeah. you know, I was just curating this this wealth of content to, to bring to uh, to bring to you, Tom, bring to our audience. Well, we, we always knew you were a fun guy, Chris. <laughs> Woohoo! Fun guy. Get it? Fun guy, mushroom. Oh, fun guy! Oh, <laughs> come on, man! <laughs> Are you throwing out the puns? Owning <laughs> up on my dad jokes for the wow. uh, for the week. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm wearing a Darth Vader T-shirt. There you go. That, that not just not just a Darth Vader, a Darth Vader like amid Vincent Van Gogh's Starry Night. Oh, oh that's very yeah, cool! Like wow, very I got the, Yes, got to, I like to have the silly Star Wars T-shirts. You know, you gotta. Gotta do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's. Uh, we we hyped up the uh, the new Marcus newsmakers. Let's let's roll into number five, Chris. What's number hey, five? Number five on the list. We've got uh, Cardinal Health as uh, they're starting drone dr- deliveries of drugs and medical supplies through a, a San Francisco based company called uh, Zipline. That's got like a kind of like a drone base in North Carolina. So uh, there, there you go. The the arrival of drone delivery of medical supplies. Like the time is here. So pretty wild, huh? So it is wild. And Zipline just got um, FAA, you know, certification to to do this. So, so is this a 
pilot project. I'm reading the article now. For folks who know how prepped I am, I'm, I read the articles as you well, start. Well, no, it's not a pilot so. project. These are drones, Tom. Zing! <laughs> <laughs> Wow! <laughs> I was just like, just saw that zipping <laughs> over home plate there. You know? <laughs> oh boy! Uh, no one is listening to this podcast now. Good golly! <laughs> over half our listeners just like stop. They're just like, I got to stop yeah, this now. <laughs> both of them just just pushed. <laughs> I'm done with this stuff. I'm gonna go back to the barbecue. Oh, All right, looks, so it looks like yeah, no, there it looks cool. Yeah, but it looks cool. It's, I, it looks I, like I don't know kind what, of a pilot project. Uh, why know, does it? I mean, what what does it replace though? I mean, I guess it does is is delivering to to consumers directly to people. I mean, it's delivering. I mean, they're you know talking about the benefits of you know getting uh, supplies out to you know people more in, in yeah. rural areas. You know, well that's true. Yeah, for increasing sure. Increasing access. Yeah, you, you know, like like I mean, yeah. in fact, that's uh, you know they're saying like the uh, the Cardinal Health flights to to the Canon Pharmacy Maine are meant to make it easier for patients to access the products they need. So so it's mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, I mean like you know people shouldn't just have to be able to you know people everywhere should be able to have you know quick access. To the healthcare products, and you know, hey, you know, if drones are the way to do it. Like, let's do it. Let's get the drones out. Absolutely. No, I mean, and, and supply chain is uh, always an issue. So, any any new element you can add to 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 shoring up the supply chain is uh, is helpful. And uh, while we're talking about supply chain. Uh, this week's Medtronic talks went out. I spoke with Greg Smith, uh, executive vice president, and head yeah. of Medtronic supply chain. So, if uh, you folks need another podcast to listen to and, and haven't yet subscribed to Medtronic talks, uh, do that. And uh, had a really good conversation with with Greg Smith, who just joined last year. So he is uh, he's uh, elbow deep um, in uh, in making sure that Medtronic uh, has the, the supplies it needs. To he'd make, been to over make at uh, he'd been over at Walmart, which uh, I mean, he was at Walmart before yeah, that, yeah, which has a, and Firestone before yeah. that. So both both companies that are you know have you know deal a lot with supply chain. So and and now he's at, at Medtronic, and uh, yeah, just uh, that's that's a can't miss conversation. Yeah, so folks should definitely check that out. All right, well, good for good for Cardinal Health. Um, yeah, we'll see where, where this. I goes. know. I mean, right, remember when um, Amazon years ago got a? It doesn't seem to. It still seems to be very much in the works, but they were like, "Oh, Amazon drone delivery." But um, I mean, medical supplies definitely seem like an area that is like a little more niche. It's a little more needed. Um, you know, kind of like, uh, yeah, this is kind of cool. Like good, good for Cardinal Health for like you know thinking of a kind of a uh, trying different things. So all right, well. Let's roll on to uh, number well, four on the new markers. Newsmakers, a very, uh, very important. Yeah, story. I mean, we've. Um, I mean, the, the the really big news lately. Uh, well, I mean, the Supreme Court uh, wrapped up quite a term, um, but uh, last week they uh, overturned Roe v. Wade, which uh, yeah. you know has been in place my entire lifetime. Um, you know, it's uh, it's a. Uh, people have a lot of strong feelings about this. Um, and, you know, we, we saw a whole host of uh, medical device companies after that decision, you know, reassuring their, their workers that they're going to, you know, they're going to help them have access to healthcare because this is just like, um, you know, this is like a vital um, it's, it's important for, for, for women Absolutely. to have access to reproductive health care. And, you know, now we have like a whole host of states that are uh, banning it. So, no, I, I mean, we, we try not to steer too far down uh, political discussions here because uh, we're a med tech podcast, exactly. but this is about uh, people's rights to care, women's rights to care, health care. And uh, it's not, an, it's, it's, it was a disturbing decision from, from my perspective. And, uh, 
I'm glad these medical device companies and others outside the medical device industry are stepping up at least to provide some level of assurance and relief, but uh, it's hard to see how it's going to really make up for, uh, for what was lost. Yeah. So. And I mean, you know, and, and some companies actually even coming out even, even stronger about it. I mean, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, whole, whole logic, which, uh, you know, is, 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 you know, you know, a women's health tech company, I mean, was, you know, uh, you know, they, they said they were concerned that, you know, women's health and women's rights in the U S taking a significant step backward with, uh, you know, the Supreme court ruling overturning, uh, overturning mm-hmm. Roe and, uh, you know, like, uh, like statements, you know, such as, uh, you know, Olympus saying that, you know, that Olympus supports the view that abortion is a part of the safe provision of, of reproductive health care. Um, you know, and then, and then on the opposite side, you got a company like Zimmer Biomet that's based in Indiana, you know, and their CEO saying he doesn't, you know, think it's, it's their place or, or time, you know, as, as leaders to, uh, you know, to, to take, you know, to allow their personal beliefs, you know, uh, to be imposed on others, you know, that's a personal decision, but you know, that, you know, Z, he still said ZB, you know, was, you know, um, you know, wanted to make sure that their, their workers had access to healthcare, including like mm-hmm. health, would yeah, provide reimbursement yeah, for getting travel. So, you know, even, even Zimmer Biomet saying that they're, you know, backing their workers on, you know, getting the healthcare they need. So, so the companies you have listed in this article, Hologic, 3M, Zimmer Biomet, Medtronic, Boston Scientific, Johnson & Johnson, Edwards, BD, and Olympus. Yeah. Uh, so that's a good sampling. Good sampling, I think yeah. It's safe, safe to say if there's companies out there that want to be added to that list that they could reach out to you. Yeah, still reach out to me. I'll, I'll get them added. You um, can update that story. Yeah. You know, the other... Other thing, you know, just to talk about the industry, um, that'll be, um, could be tough going forward is like, there's a lot of questions about the protection of people's health information. You know, if it's abortion is illegal in some States, I mean, I mean, there was, there was talk. I I have another article that's out on our sites about, you know, HHS is trying to provide some, you know, assurances and guarantees of like, you know, privacy of people's health information, but, you know, looking at their guidance, I mean, there's, there's ways, I mean, it looks, it looks like there, there could be vulnerabilities now going forward. And, you know, there was a lot of talk on social media after the, uh, you know, after the Supreme court's uh, decision about, uh, you know, like, you know, women urging each, you know, urging women to delete their period trackers and, you know, stuff like that. Right. You know, like, right. You no, know, cause yeah. I mean, that's, that could be, you know, if something's like criminalized in a state, you know, that could be, uh, you know, something you could seek the information for. So it'll, it'll be, I mean, that'll be something that I'm thinking that, you know, digital health developers, software developers are going to be having to wrestle with a bit more. That's a great point. Going forward, you know, like um, there was one period tracking company based in Germany that actually like flat out said, we won't cooperate with U.S. law enforcement if they try to get your information from us. So. No, I think that's that's great that they're saying that, but I'm I've always been reluctant to give it any information about anything. Yeah, <laughs> and I think uh, a couple of weeks ago, I remember there were conversations that uh, advice to women to make sure you delete your data, and yeah, that that just struck me as as very sound and prudent advice, and um, it's a good question as to how this might hinder or um, just alter the way people are looking at their healthcare data yeah. and whether they'd be willing to participate in trials and things like that. Um, there's, uh, there, uh, there's, there are a lot of 
shoes to drop, I think, going forward. Yeah, I mean, we've had HIPAA in the U.S., and that's I, that's been a big benefit, you know, for health providers. They can be like, you can feel safe talking with your health provider because your health information is legally protected. You could go yeah. after us legally if, like, your information falls in other people's hands. And, you know, now, um, like, are you going to worry about your sheriff <laughs> trying to get your health information? Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, we don't, we haven't done this before, but this would be a good opportunity. If folks are... Well, you're, you're listening to this podcast. If you're hearing me utter this statement, if you have thoughts on this topic, and, and uh, please look on social media. Chris and, my, Chris and I both share the podcast and uh, offer your thoughts in the comments if you're willing. Yeah. Or, or email us directly if you want to. You're happy to direct mail. We'd love to hear your thoughts Absolutely. on this. But uh, uh, I think you're right, Chris. I think where it's a great point. I think we're going to see a lot of uh, unexpected, unintended, or intended consequences to this this decision. Yeah. When you have, you have uh, the court like overturn like decades of accepted law. I mean, wow. Yeah. We'll have to see where things go. I mean, what just happened with the EPA, you know, is this, is FDA going to be targeted in a suit? I don't know if it is targeted in a suit right now, if it's, if it's something that may be considered, but uh, they're definitely curtailing federal authority. Um, yeah. And this is unrelated to, to Roe v. Wade, but uh, just the SCOTUS in general. Uh, is changing things up uh, in a significant way. The FDA was throwing around a lot of authority during the pandemic. Yep. I mean, a lot, lot of EUAs flying out there. And yep. you know, then a lot has to be wrestled now that we're hopefully crawling out of this thing. So, um, so yeah, the court, we're going to have court, you know, the high court weighing in on that eventually. I mean, they already weighed in on, you know, masks on airplanes and with the FAA and right. kinds of stuff. Well, CDC stuff, you know, they've overturned. So, well, well thank you to those com- those companies, those med tech companies for supporting their employees. Yep. Um, and uh, I don't know. It's, it's it's something that's been very depressing for a lot of people. It's it's very upsetting. And you know, yes, it's good to good to see companies like recognizing this is something that's a concern for their employees. Yep. And I think uh, I count myself as one of those people you just mentioned, Chris. So yes. So let's take a quick break from our new markers newsmakers to uh, bring back my interview with Michael Alibrand, president of PSN Labs. In this clip, I asked Michael to explain what functional prototyping is. Let's listen. Tom, functional prototyping at a high level is creating a part that has very similar characteristics to what you're going to receive in a final production-worthy part. So if you think about the subject of prototyping, there's a host of different things you can consider. A lot of people think of 3D printing. A lot of people think of machining. A lot of people think of rapid molding. The problem is all three of those other techniques lack the same performance as a final injection molded production part. They miss the ability to capture things like cooling or orientation that's driven by the gate location in a particular part. So what I mean by functional prototyping is generating real tooling that has the same gate locations, captures the same cooling line layouts as close as possible, so that at the end of the day, the part you've generated is a one-to-one correlation with what you're going to receive in production. All right, we'll hear a bit more from Michael a little later in the podcast. If you'd like more information about PSN Labs right now, go to PSN Labs. 
All right, we're back. Chris Newmarker, what is number three on your vaunted Newmarker's Newsmakers list? Well, I have some more positive news here. Uh, talking about FDA regulation, we've got FDA uh, cl- clearing uh, Acutus's uh, AccuCross system uh, for uh, use with uh, Boston Scientific's uh, Watchman uh, stroke prevention device. So, so there we go. Like the Watchman left atrial appendage uh, closure uh, device. So just, uh, you know, uh, something uh, moving forward here. Uh, you know, for, for Acutus, you know, as they, you know, expand their, you know, li- enabling them to launch an expanded suite of uh, left heart uh, access products. And uh, Acutus uh, interim CEO, David Roman said the AccuCross system provides interventional cardiologists and electrophysiologists with unique benefits of broad compatibility with market leading access sheets. You know, they had to sell their uh, left heart access portfolio to Medtronic right. for for 50 million um you know which which is just closing but um you know they uh, yeah their shares skyrocketed on this news so yeah so it's uh Two. Yeah, you know, like a one a BTIG analyst uh, Maria Tivo like I wrote described this as a, an incremental expected expected win for the company so you know, the shares rose 82%. It's still uh, just around a buck, or at least it was at the writing of this article, but uh, that's a significant rise. So hopefully yeah. they're, uh, they're on a, on the right track. We had a top accused person at uh, Device Talks uh, Boston, you know, like that's people right. should really go to that show if they want to meet people. Yeah, that was a great, great program. Yeah. And you, and you had, had your article about that as well. That's, that's gotten a lot of attention. Yeah. The pulse field ablation, like really, really yep. fascinating tech. Very cool. And of course, Steve Mickelson was on the podcast before. So, yes, we're big fans of Acutus. So. That's right. All right. Fantastic. Let's roll into number two, Chris Newmarker. Well, um, you know, uh, we, we just recently, uh, you know, published our uh, Pharma 50 on uh, drug discovery and development, which I encourage people to look at. It's, uh, you know, or, uh, it's, it's kind of like the, the big 100 for pharma, except we have, you know, 50 companies. It's the largest pharma companies in the world. And pharma just ro- like Pfizer just rocketed to the top of the, uh, the pharma 50 last year, you know, with all the success that they've, they've had with their, uh, you know, their COVID 19 vaccine. And uh, now we now we see Medtronic like bringing a Pfizer EVP under their board. So it's uh, Lydia Fonseca. She's the uh, EVP and chief digital and technology officer at, uh, at Pfizer, um, you know, spearheading a, a range of uh, of programs and initiatives uh, over there, including she was part of the digital team that was the effort to develop the uh, the COVID nineteen vaccine. So, uh, mm-hmm. so yeah, it looks like a really good, uh, really good board addition for Medtronic. Previously served uh, as a chief information officer at Quest Diagnostics, and prior to that, uh, she was at LabCorp. So uh, she's no stranger to uh, to the medical device industry. Exactly, so. and you know, and frankly, you know, we've got. You know, the, you know, the, you know, it used to be very much like devices, pharma, you know, those those whole areas are just all kind of, we're seeing so many kind of like, you know, combo products, you know, things going on. Like it's, um, it's it's an interesting time. It's good. It's good. They've got, you know, someone with, uh, you know, with her expertise on, on their board. Absolutely. And uh, to our earlier conversation, it's nice to have more women in, in positions of responsibility. Uh, making these decisions. And I know Medtronic and others have uh, have been working hard on that. We had Sally Saba on the Medtronic Talks podcast. I actually ran that on this podcast back in March. And uh, I spoke with Camille Chang-Gilmore at Boston Scientific. Uh, and we'll have that interview in a couple of weeks. So awesome. Uh, yeah, lots of attention being paid to this. And uh, as we can see, it's important to have 
many different people sitting at the table making exactly. important decisions. Yeah. All right, Chris, let's roll into the big number one on New Markers Newsmakers. Well, number one on the list, just a you know neat little. I mean, sometimes we just get like a nice, nice little story that's like you know talking about like where somebody's building something or doing something this is just one of those like boston scientific is expanding their uh, their presence in georgia they're building a new plant you know outside uh atlanta in the suburb of johns creek it's going to be a you know more than a 62 million dollar investment you know bringing uh you know roughly 340 new jobs to the to the peach state over the next uh next seven years and you know just uh you know, saying that this will, you know, this is just enabling continued growth for Boston Scientific, you know, to, you know, to, to get this, uh, this new facility going on in Georgia. Mm-hmm. You no, know, and frankly, I mean, this, this is coming at the same time that there's a lot more, you know, talk about, you know, reshoring of, you know, trying to get supply chains to be a little more local, especially in, in the medical device industry where, you know, the products are so, uh, are so needed for, for people. So, um, you know, I, I wonder if we're going to see more of these stories about different big med techs saying like, Hey, we're building a new, new plant in Georgia. We're building a new te- plant in Texas. Um, Hey, if they'd like to build a new one in Minnesota, I mean, our winters are getting warmer, you know, we've got a good, really good workforce here. <laughs> you know, I, I could go on, but in our, our state economic development department might want to send me a check or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. No, and I was just trying to think of, the, of other med tech companies in Georgia. And I, was, I remember there was the Innovation Factory, which was a, a, kind of a med tech incubator group down there that was in Duluth, Georgia. Alpharetta um, is, you know, like that whole area around Alpharetta is just like a big, as far as like, you know, uh, contract manufacturers and the supplier base, it's just, that's mm. just really big. Yeah, that whole manufacturing base includes, uh, you know, Spectrum Plastics Group, which is, you know, based in uh, Alpharetta and is like a, like a huge, huge supplier for the industry so so yeah there's there's a lot going on around there hosted a device talks tuesday Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. and this i think uh boss scientific had purchased endo choice back in 2016 yeah, and exactly. they were based down in alpharetta georgia so they've so been there yeah and so their yep. expansion is taking place now good point well we'll have uh device talk southeast in a couple of years there we maybe. go device talks atlanta or yeah. Do it in February. February? How's that sound? January, that February good. for I mean, us. I think if we maybe we could, uh, if we could like move it a little bit more over to Savannah, you know, that sounds that sounds like a good deal. We get I always like to get those warm pralines like on a on a Savannah vacation. So there you go. <laughs> I wonder if you if we if we went through all of our podcasts if there's one where we haven't mentioned some type of food. That's true. Food is great. Yes. We like food. Yeah, we do like food. Mm, <laughs> food is food. great. That's the full quote for, for this food week's podcast. That's the one takeaway. <laughs> food you is want. great. I agree. <laughs> food is great. All right, before we begin our interview with Michael Mahoney of Boston Scientific, I want to bring back our sponsor, PSN Labs. I had an interview with Michael Alibrand, president of PSN Labs. In this clip, Michael explains why functional prototyping is important. Let's listen. Functional prototyping, Tom, is is very critical, and particularly in medical devices, because you're looking to generate a part that has the same properties as what you're going to generate in a production setting. So particularly in the medical space arena, once you have a part qualified for an application, it's difficult to change. So once you have your material spec'd, your design spec'd, your process spec'd, it's very hard to go back and recreate that. So when we look at the ways of making prototypes, it's it's critical to pick a process that is going to yield you something that's worthwhile. So take 3D printing, for example. 3D printing is a great way to make a prototype, 
but it doesn't necessarily capture all the same characteristics that an injection molding part has. It lacks the ability to understand orientation effects. It lacks the ability to understand cooling, which ultimately affects warpage of parts. So if I'm trying to create a medical device and making deterministic paths based on the prototyping, it's very critical that I choose a process that's going to yield me what I'm looking for. All right. Well, that concludes our interview with Michael Alibrand of PSN Labs. If you'd like more information about PSN Labs, please go to psnlabs.com. Well, Mike Mahoney, welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon. Thank you for hosting me. It's great to have you here. It's been a long time coming. Happy to have you on. Uh, as I mentioned frequently, I'm I'm a Boston guy. I grew up here, so uh, I love having a company with Boston in its name on the podcast. And you're mourning uh, uh, you're mourning the Celtics loss, like I am probably. Yeah, yeah. Although it's hard to be too disappointed. I, I mean, well, we don't need to bore people, but the Red Sox have been more exciting than Sox I anticipated. So, so uh, if the Yankees were, weren't on fire, we'd be uh, we'd be close to closing in on first. Well, let's talk about you, Mike. That's why people listen to this podcast. I always love to open up these podcasts with a uh, an understanding of how folks got to where they are, their, their path into to medical devices. I mentioned that I was listening to an interview that you did, conference I was working on a couple of years ago. So uh, I know a little bit about the story, but what drew you into being health into healthcare or medical devices? I'll try to keep it kind of short. So I, I wanted to become a doctor and I ran into organic chemistry. <laughs> And got a C plus and didn't think it was going to cut it. So changed majors to finance in college. Quite frankly, I tried to get a job with GE Healthcare right out of college. Now, why was I mentioned you? I heard you, you mentioned that in that previous interview. So your story stacks up. But what was it about GE Healthcare? Well, you know, the company GE overall, uh, I still have a lot of respect for the company. But at the time was really maybe the top company in the world at the, t- at the time. Right. You know, almost a 500 billion market cap. And the markets are great. So I thought it'd be a terrific company to work for and training and so forth, but they wouldn't hire me. They wanted engineers or sales experience. So my first job was selling cash registers door to door in Northern Indiana. <laughs> and uh, I did want to bring yeah, that up. That's, that's yeah. outstanding. <laughs> but I, I got their attention. I called them every 90 days and eventually they hired me. And I ended up becoming, my first job was selling uh, nuclear cardiology cameras in North Carolina, South Carolina. Not door to Back door. in 1989. You didn't do that door to door though. No. <laughs> you mentioned that you, you were an early employee, one of the earliest employees in, in GHX, the Global Healthcare Exchange. How did that come about? Because that's uh, turned into obviously a very important company these days, as it, as it been for a while. Oh, I'm so proud of that uh, company. And, uh, and maybe the job I learned the most of, of any job in my career. So at the time, it was in the dot-com era. And um, there was a lot of pressure on manufacturers to pay additional administrative fees. And so the manufacturers pulled together the, the big ones. You know, Boston Scientific was part of it, J&J, Abbott, Baxter, all the big ones at the time. The CEOs of those companies came together, so let's form our own company. Mm-hmm. And um, at the time, I was at GE running their healthcare IT divisions. And Jeff Immelt asked me if I was interested. And I said, sure. And uh, at the time, it was going to be a part-time job. But soon enough, after I started doing it, we needed to raise money. And the board wanted an independent leader. So I decided to take that jump and leave GE Healthcare and work there full-time as the CEO when we had five employees wow. at the time. Now, Bruce Johnson, he's a good friend of mine. He's been running for a long time. They've done an amazing job. But I'm proud to say there was probably 100 other B2B exchanges formed by industries. And it's the only one that actually survived and thrived. They've done a great job. That's outstanding. 
I'm sensing a pattern here because we can fast forward now to your your job at J&J where you were heading med tech, medical devices and, and diagnostics when you took the job at Boston Scientific. You're not afraid to take those those leaps. What sort of motivates you? I mean, you, you've moved from J&J to Boston, which is a large company, but at the time it had $7 billion market cap, I suppose, where it was today. What goes into that thought process when you decide to, to take a chance like that? Well, I was uh, when I J and J is a great company. I was there for five or six years and really enjoyed it and learned learned a ton there. But the jobs like Boston Scientific don't come around that often. And as you said, the company at the time wasn't doing that well, and that's probably one of the reasons why there was, weren't better candidates who wanted the job. <laughs> so, and so I I also had a long runway. I took the job when I was forty six, and so I knew I'd have enough duration time frame as long as shareholders hung in there to turn the company around. And I knew it had a great brand name and uh, I had enough confidence based on my experience at J&J, GE and the startup that I could do it. And so I, I felt it was a great challenge and um, I thought I would really regret it if I didn't do it That's at great. the time. And you're coming up on your, your 10-year mark as CEO, right? Yep. I was, I was doing the, the, my math and, and looking around at make sure I think one of the more experienced CEOs in MedTech, I think there's probably maybe two or three ahead of you. You mean one of the older <laughs> I'm an experienced podcaster. So yes, yes, there's a few of us out there. <laughs> That's great. So let's talk about uh, your coming aboard. You had a, a span of time when you weren't CEO, you were, you, there was a non-compete involved, I believe that sort of kept you from taking the job for, I think about a year. What did you learn over that year about Boston Scientific? What were its strengths? And what were its weaknesses? Well, that year was actually a gift. I was being sued by J&J and the company was, and so I couldn't do the job for a year, but it turned out to be a big benefit because we had a um, interim CEO, Hank Cushman, who was a good, turned out to be a good friend of mine. And I was involved, but not, I didn't have to deal with the shareholders part of the equation or the analysts and so forth. And so I could really invest that time into the culture of the company and the people and the portfolio and the pipeline, all the stuff that really matters the most and really dig into the, those areas. And what I found was at the time, you know, a culture that hadn't been winning for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the market cap, as you said, was like six or seven billion and the company wasn't growing. The company at the time was very concentrated in drug loading stents and CRM devices. And those products now represent almost less than 20% of our company. And so it really, the other divisions weren't flourishing or had a, the proper investments. We also weren't a global company. We were really just in Japan. We had 40 million sales in China when I joined. It would be wow. over, a billion, over a billion next year. So it really wasn't a globalized company. It was uh, overly concentrated in those two markets. And the people here, there at the time were, were terrific, but just needed the new, new inspiration, new values, new excitement. We streamlined the company quite a bit in, in the process. It was, we delayered it quite a bit, brought in a lot of new leaders refocused the portfolio, got the board behind it, and uh, we've consistently done pretty well since then. How do you get at the, well, we'll talk about the, the structural changes in a second, but how do you get at that feelings, the, 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 the people and the culture and maybe the, I think you had said in, in the interviews I'm cited, that I cited that people were used to losing, that there was just a, a feeling that maybe was an inevitability. How do you get about changing people's perspectives at a company? Well, we did a couple of things that seemed small, but at the time they were pretty big. We made some leadership changes at the top, eliminate layers in the company to get a faster decision-making, greater connectivity to myself and the business presidents. So we kind of took out two layers of the company there. We didn't have a, we got rid of a COO position and a head of international and some layers that just weren't needed for our size company. 
So that, that was helpful in the speed. And then the culture was very, um, it was slow and overly conservative. And, you know, you'd look at Excel spreadsheets of road, triple Z, column XYZ 54, and this number had a decimal point and shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And it had a bit of a, uh, almost like gotcha culture. Okay. Rather, rather than we're in this together, let's figure this out together and let's win together. So we kind of just pulled the team together more, brought in some external talent, leaned out some management layers, redefined what we wanted to be as a company. We recreated the values of the company. We recreated the color of our company. (laughs) We created advancing science for life. I almost viewed it as a startup. And how do we just change everything from the mission, the vision, the colors? We sold our headquarters building. Wow. We, We did lots of things to kind of change the status quo, I'd say. The idea that you want to hold people accountable, but you also want them to be uh, charged with taking chances and, and, and growing and, and, and trusting themselves. How do you balance that when you're working with, with the staff to make sure people are, are making decisions that they believe in, but that they're also decisions that work? Well, the first thing that uh, having worked in a bunch of different companies and seen different matrices work and so forth, we try to decentralize the company as much mm-hmm. as possible. And when you decentralize more and you have a global business president who's really accountable for global sales, global operating income, and sure, they have to work with, they need to work across the globe, but they're really accountable for the global number. And then they're accountable for resource allocation, portfolio prioritization. So then you actually need a a leader of that business, not, not a manager of the business. And so I think when you decentralize more, you really push accountability and ownership more to where it should be. And sometimes when companies are overly matrixed, it results in slow decision-making, risk aversion, lack of decision-making. And so I think having that decentralization where it makes sense, first of all, leaders want those jobs, not managers. Mm -hmm. Managers want to go to meetings and push decisions around. (laughs) Um, So leaders want those jobs. And then you trust them and they have to deliver the results. And most of the time they do. And then we, so we put a lot of our time on our talent development, our leadership development and holding people accountable, but people really want that decision-making capability. That's great. It's almost self-selecting in a way. You're going to get the right people to step in. I want to talk about the structural changes in a moment, the business you moved into, but just while we're hitting upon culture, I mean, Boston Scientific obviously has a great legacy and, and a great history. And just recently, uh, you lost Pete Nicholas, one of your co-founders. I'm curious as to what influence he had on the company and what impact will, will not having him around to, to place a phone call to uh, have on Boston Scientific? Well, he, you know, he had a massive impact. Him and John Abley started the company, two people. Right. Um, that was it. And they, when they bought Meditech years and years ago. And he, P- Pete was, a, uh, he was an innovator, smart risk taker, and he wanted to win, but he wanted to win it the right way. So a lot of those values continue on with the company. And um, when I joined on, he was chairman of the board for a few years, and then he uh, retired as the chairman of board, I don't know, six, seven years ago. And so over the last six or seven years, it's been much more of a, just a friendship that I have with him or enjoyed with him and his family, more so than a working relationship. So I had just the memories of me with him is, um, you know, he, he took a big risk in just even hiring me because I hadn't been a public company CEO. There was a non-compete. I couldn't do the job for a year. He took the right risk and wasn't afraid to do that. 
And he also led the right way, the right values in place. Uh, he's a family man and always optimistic, maybe sometimes too optimistic, but always optimistic, always looking at the bright side of things and finding uh, new paths and new growth opportunities, despite what the challenges are. So I take his passing, besides great friendship with him and his wife and his family, is uh, he was an optimistic person who did things the right way, always looking forward and never worried about celebrating the past or just looking for new opportunities constantly. That's great. And just looking at yourself, I just, we've gone over the you're leaving steady job to help start GHX, to G to help start GHX and leaving J&J where you, there was a path, I think, forward for you to come to Boston. How do you look at the people at candidates that, who have made those types of decisions that may not be natural steps that they would take in a career? Do you see that as, as a leader, as a, as a risk taker? Well, there's always different paths. You know, so yeah. there's great leaders at Boston Scientific who've been here for 30 years and they always find they find ways to reinvent themselves and change divisions or move overseas and, and constantly improve themselves. And so you don't have to jump around like I did yeah. to a couple of different companies. There's people that have moved around to different companies and you see a lot when you change companies, just like you do when you change divisions at a multinational corporation. So I think the key is is to have a variety of experiences whether it's with the same company or multiple companies like I did, and be willing to kind of chase the run of the fire. It's the divisions that are slow growing that you turn around where you get more, where you learn the most. It's, it's a region that you turn around. It's a, an M&A acquisition they have to integrate. It's not just the steady 5% grower every year where you learn the most. So I encourage our people, it's not always the size of the business that matters. It's the complexity, the shape it's in when you took it over. Uh, the team that you surround yourself with, the personnel decisions you make, culture that you have. So it doesn't, not people get enamored with this, how many dollar signs and zeros are behind whatever they lead, but that's mm-hmm. really, it almost doesn't matter. Because <laughs> sometimes at GHX, that might, some of the toughest things I've done were that size company. Interesting. Great points. So let's talk a bit about what the changes that happened at the company, businesses you moved into. What were some of the two or three areas of high growth that you saw that Boston Scientific needed to be a part of? Oh, well, there are, there are a bunch of them. So if you think of the company today, we have an extremely strong, med, we call it MedSurge, which is our endoscopy business, our urology business, and neuromodulation. And uh, those businesses were all, I would say, not subscale, but not invested hard enough in, they were, and they were smaller. Primarily in urology, we made three or four big acquisitions that really changed the footprint of that business, where it's now the global leader in urology, before it was about a three or $400 million basket and stent company. So now we're the most comprehensive player in urology. Endoscopy, we did a little less M&A, but poured more fuel in the R&D to create uh, the leader that that business is in. Another one I'm proud of is peripheral interventions. We've created the largest now interventional oncology organization kind of company in the world with, through the BTG acquisition. And that just offers so many opportunities beyond liver cancer and lung cancer. We're, we're looking at early human studies now. We have FDA approval for regulatory approval to take that Y90 product to glioblastoma, enrolling a 20-patient trial in brain cancer. And we'll also be doing the same with uh, prostate cancer. So we've created a lot of new adjacencies within the company. We've done about 45 acquisitions, and we invest you know, about almost 9% of our sales, which is about 13 billion or so in R&D. So we invest a lot in our portfolio internally, and we've done a lot with M&A to change the growth profile of the company. But what I'm maybe most proud of besides the people, the company is the markets that we competed in 10 years ago. If you look at those market segments, growth rate for the company was zero. So we competed in markets that didn't grow. 
Hmm. And now the markets that we compete in really are six to 7% markets that grow six to seven. So unless we grow above six to seven, we're not even taking share. So I'm really proud of how we've changed the portfolio mix of the company over those years. Is it fairly evident to know what markets are going to become those markets? Are they growing because the aging population, because of demographics? Are they growing because of the players in the field? How do you identify those markets where that future growth is going to help lift a company like Boston Scientific? Well, we don't always know. We've made our fair share of mistakes for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we've, we've had internal programs uh, that haven't worked, big ones. We've had some acquisitions that didn't work. So we're not a, you know, we don't bat a thousand, that's for sure, but we bat pretty well. So you don't always know, but I would say we have incredibly strong depth of our team here. And they know they're, because of that decentralization, they know their markets really, really well. And they're, they're incentivized to find new growth constantly. So they're, they're very in touch with their early trends and the things that are going on in the marketplace. That's why we saw that interventional oncology opportunity with BTG. Uh, as an example, there's a new therapy out there called a pulse field ablation mm-hmm. that we think will change the narrative in EP over the next 10 years. And we were the Series A investor for $200,000 of the company we bought called Ferripulse. And we saw that opportunity seven years ago. So I think our teams do a pretty good job, not all the time, but a pretty good job of scouting early technology because they know their markets well, and then they're empowered to, to try to act on it. And we try to not create 50 roadblocks in between that. How do you work with those areas that don't work out so well? I guess I'm thinking about Lotus and Taver where you had to pull out, but you're, you've got a program now that I think hopefully will bring you back in. How do you try to turn a retreat into an advance? That's a good case study for one, one day that our, our Lotus program, because that was such a tough decision because we actually had superiority data in the U.S. over Medtronic with mm-hmm. that load of mouth. So wow. we had a, yeah, so you don't get that very often. And so if we had a mulligan over again, we probably would have ended that program two or three years earlier than we did. But we kept wanting to stick it out because of that clinical data was so strong. And at the end of the day, we just had a difficult time manufacturing that device with a quality and consistency that we needed. And more important, as importantly, the device was quite complicated. So the ability to improve it or to modify it was extremely difficult. But we have a lot of faith in our engineers. And that one, we finally said it just uh, the payback, what's, what's needed to invest in it is not going to be, be worth it. It's not going to be as competitive. We had acquired Symetis, I don't know, four or five years ago. And that has turned out to be an excellent acquisition for us. We'll enroll that clinical trial this year for all risk indications. And it's really the opposite story. We can manufacture that at scale, at COGS and gross margins that are very good. And the platform is far easier to reiterate and improve than Lotus was. So we, we had a lot of expensive learnings from the Lotus kind of program in terms of how we evaluate companies and also when do we take a fresh look at our program and say, Mm -hmm. this is just not going to work anymore. Because it's really hard to do that when you have so much internal momentum around something. It's difficult to come in and say, we got to stop this altogether. And now I think that's created some better processes in the company on how to evaluate things objectively and when to say, you know, cut bait or reinvest more. When you made that decision with Lotus, did all resources immediately, or at least a portion of them, go back to Somatis or or the the other product? Or were they... Different parts of the company. Different parts. Yeah. Of the so company. there was, yeah, we, we let go of some headcount, but we kept quite a few for the accurate TABR program. And we also have a lot of other early stage programs that we devoted that uh, engineering talent to. Interesting. 
let's uh, talk about the future, where where things are going, where we're going with medtech. What are you most excited about uh, that's going on at Boston Scientific? I and mean, we can look at technology based on less invasive tools, but I also like to talk about where the healthcare system is going with ASCs and the move out of the hospital and, and how Boston Scientific is responding to that. But first, let's talk about technology. What are some of the trends you're seeing there? Well, one is I think we're, and other companies have similar strategies. I think we're blessed to have primarily interventional medicine company. Mm-hmm. So we have a few surgical products like our deep brain stimulation um, and neuromodulation, which are a bit less so spinal cord stem. But most of our products are interventional. And what we've seen with interventional medicine is how much innovation there is. I mean, who would have guessed that you know, tabby valves can be put in, in less than an hour and an accurate watchman device can now be done in 45 minutes, and many cases, the, most cases, the patient leaves the same day. So having an interventional at its core skill set is really helpful in a market environment where hospitals are lacking staff. Hospitals don't want you know two or three nights overnight in a hospital. They want to move to ASC center. So having an interventional core competency is really, really helpful, I think, as you look for, t- towards the future. Mm-hmm. And also, it's really where so much innovation has been you know, delivered, whether it be st- all these structural heart capabilities or interventional medicine, all the things that we're seeing in our interventional oncology business. We have all these delivery tools and visualization systems to bring therapeutic cancer treatment anywhere in the body. It is really all clinical trials now. And so I think being an interventional medicine company is a tailwind given the environment that we're in. And it's oftentimes in this interventional area where you see the most innovative disruption in whether it be, you know, pulse field ablation we talked about. Now, robotics has clearly been a big home run for many companies like Stryker and Intuitive. That's terrific. Anything related to neuroscience and cancer, we like a lot right now. That's why we, again, that interventional oncology beachhead, we want to globalize that business. There's so much opportunity with microelectronics and sensing capability in the neuro area, whether it be spinal cord stem, DBS. We're doing a trial right now in Alzheimer's. We're doing a trial in stroke, uh, overactive bladder. So whenever you have active implantables that are miniature, that are smart, and whether it's different locations in the brain or in the vagal nerve that you're, you're sensing, there's so much untapped potential in those areas. You mentioned robotics. Yep. Will Boston have a make a play in robotics? I mean, there are robotics coming out that help in the interventional space. They, they don't have to be open surgery necessarily. We really haven't seen for our portfolio the need to. Um, Intuitive and many others have really been a kind of a more of a general surgery company as its backbone. Mm-hmm. And so in our, for example, our endoscopy business, we have so much capability in single-use imaging uh, with our spyglass products that we can deliver very small instruments throughout the deep in the lung and all over the body, either to treat cancer, to test, to stop bleeding. And you know, we've been approached by a number of the robotic companies to kind of integrate our tool set with those robotics as something we'll always consider. But we haven't felt the need to put a big foothold into the robotic space at this point, based on our portfolio. Is that a tough decision? To make, to not be involved when everyone else, nearly everyone else is? Well, it depends what you want to focus on. Um, yeah. We don't see how, how a robot for us, uh, you have, for example, an interventional cardiology, whether it be coronary PCI, whether it be EP, CRM, structural heart, you haven't seen any robotic players yeah. at all in those areas. Yeah. Uh, so it's pr- typically a general surgery application. So I understand why Intuitive, Medtronic, and J&J are interested in because they have big general surgery companies. Yeah, makes sense. 
How about where healthcare is moving? We're, we're, t- we're talking about hospital at home. We're obviously seeing, as I mentioned earlier, a rise of ambulatory surgery centers. How does Boston Scientific respond to that change in where healthcare is being delivered? Well, the ASC is clearly a big shift there as more and more patients are being done same day in those settings. And there's, there's good value there because there's productivity, typically throughput enhancements. They're typically really well run. Sometimes a little bit more pricing pressure in those environments, but net net, it's a really nice market for us and, and many other companies. On the home healthcare business, we don't really have a play in that area. I would say the closest thing that we do would be in our diagnostics portfolio. So attached to our CRM business is a nice diagnostics business that we do everything from a Holter monitoring to a product called MCT to long-term Holter monitoring to our implantable loop recorder devices. So these are smart devices that you know patients interact with at their home, oftentimes to see whether they're an AFib or not. And then we have a nice kind of continuum of care of products to treat that patient along the way, all the way up to a pacemaker. So we most oftentimes touch patients in their home through our diagnostics business, through our CRM business, because all of those patients are monitored 24-7 by their bedside or through their Apple, you know, through the phone. And through our neuromodulation business, where pain patients will be actively engaged in the treatment of care, leveraging the application that we have on our phone, and then ideally optimizing their spinal cord stimulator or deep range stimulator uh, through those vehicles. Interesting. We're going to fast forward five years. Would Boston Scientific look dramatically different than it does today? Is there something you're working on that is going to sort of change its complexion or its profile uh, considerably? as healthcare changes? I think you'll see us continue to focus on these bit large disease states like yeah. cardiovascular in general, where there's so much new innovation and disruption in there. Cardiology, broadly speaking, oncology, you know, you look at what our endoscopy, neurology, neuromodulation, there's so many adjacencies to those areas that we, you know, through our venture portfolio, through our long-term R&D programs, we just see a lot of, we, we expect to continue to increase that weighted average growth rate to six to seven to eight percent in terms of the markets that we compete in. Gotcha. Two more topics I want to talk about, larger ones. The global economy. We're seeing a downturn, this talk of recession. As we mentioned up top, you've been at the helm for 10 years or close to it. How do you do things differently in a recession? And, and is MedTech still a recession-proof industry? Well, I think it's better in a recession than other some other sectors, just mm-hmm. because of the obviously the global demographics that we of patients that we treat. Patients are getting older. Obesity is still an issue. Heart failure is still an issue. Cancer is still an issue. And uh, people can't, they need to be treated. Most of our products are not so elective in nature. We're not selling Botox. We're not selling really out-of-pocket elective procedures where patients typically have to pay for it and they may opt out, like may opt out of a fancier car. Mm-hmm. So I think most healthcare companies fit that profile, which is probably you know good in a recession. But we feel the same thing that all my peers do right now. On the other side of it, you know, raising interest rates means your, your cost of money to borrow to buy a company is more expensive. All the shipping challenges that we see because of uh, increasing fuel prices is dramatic. And you've seen the same pressures on raw materials that our peers are having. So the ability to, in a market where at times it can be difficult to pass on price, uh, I think that's where better tailwind than most sectors, I believe, in terms of demographics. We might have a little bit more headwind in that it's not as easy to pass on a 5%, 10% price increase in medtech as it is in the food industry, potentially, or the airline. Right. 
So that's where, where we have a little more tougher challenges to continue to figure out how to improve gross margins and margins in that environment. But the demand for healthcare is super strong. And just focusing on acquisitions for a second, the IPO market is, is disappearing or has disappeared. M&A likely would be the only exit route. I imagine prices for acquiring companies will go down, but you're right. If, if interest rates are up, I guess it would make borrowing more difficult. My question is, <laughs> will we see more acquisitions as a result of the deflation in prices or does, do they kind of even out with the interest rates? For us, we've been pretty consistent for many, many years throughout our venture portfolio or through other targets that we like. So we've been pretty consistent over the years. So I would expect a similar consistency. Some of the valuations of almost all companies have come down. I think it'll take a while for most boards to, we want to believe it's going to rebound quickly, but we'll see whether it rebounds quickly or, or not. But I think you know if the valuations stay reduced as an industry, you're likely to see more M&A activity over the next two years if valuations stay down. But we've been pretty consistent throughout. Great. And with supply chain, you mentioned that as well. I know you've had, you're you've having a, a change in leadership supply chain. Ed Mackey's retiring. I wonder any quote or comment on that. Any any funny stories to share? I know you've been uh, working Ed. closely for a lot of years. Yeah. I don't know if this is an R-rated podcast. I got a lot of stories <laughs> on Ed. <laughs> no, Ed's a, Ed's a very good friend and is a terrific global leader for us. You know, a couple of things that he did. He helped us really globalize the company more. All of our R and D was in the U.S prior to him joining. And now we have a massive footprint of R&D in India and China and Costa Rica and all over the world. And he pulled up, did a lot with our digital capabilities beyond manufacturing supply chain, did a lot with our digital capabilities that are, are used every day now to train physicians, to remote proctoring, to you know, productivity tools. So he's a terrific uh, friend and great teammate, but we've got a, uh, Brad Sorensen's taking his job. He's terrific. And it allowed uh, new opportunities. I think one thing I'm most proud of, we've, we've had very little leadership turnover with our VP and above. And we have really strong depth of internal talent. So when, when we have planful retirements or occasionally somebody leaves, more often than not, they're being promoted from internally. And, and final area I want to talk about, I know you need to go, but I've had a recent conversation and we'll be running on the podcast uh, at, a, at a future episode with Camille Chan Gilmore talking about diversity. How have you looked at that issue since your arrival at Boston Scientific? And what concrete steps have, have you seen or have happened under you to change the, the look of your workforce and I guess to, to bring greater DEI to Boston Scientific? Yeah, well, Camille will be great. She'll have way more energy than me. More <laughs> she was me. fantastic. It'll be much highly more highly rated podcast than mine, but uh, she's terrific. You're, it sounds like you already had her on. Yes, well, she, okay. we have interviewed her already, but she'll be on a future episode. Yeah. Okay, she's terrific. So she'll give you all. I think the, maybe for me, you know, when I joined the company, we created the new, you know, five values for the company. And to be honest with you, you know, diversity was one of them, but it was almost more of a um, academic from the brain. Let's let's put diversity as one of the top five, and then that that has evolved over the years to like really in the heart. And in what you do every day and think about rather than just kind of it's it's on the plaque and see we're diverse. So it's really become much more for myself personally and for our team and our employees, how we do business now, how we think about recruiting, how we make decisions. You know, all the facts, the more diverse the company, the more inclusive, the more competitive, it drives greater employee engagement. So I'm proud we've done a number of things. We were one of the first companies to actually put out numbers 
So we, we specified publicly you know, four years ago what our percent women in the company are, percent multicultural in the company. We put out specific targets, which is still a debate today whether you should do that, what our goals would be. And then we've increased those goals over years. So we, were, we put it out there because we knew if we put some goals, specific goals around it, it changes the behavior of the strategies you do to actually execute on that, whether it be recruiting from black engineering colleges to just looking at our sales forces and how diverse they are. So by we put in metrics and then we've done a ton of training, unconscious bias training, recruiting capabilities. We have significant, uh, we have eight ERG groups and they're each executive committee leaders responsible for an ERG group. We have monthly ERG calls with our teams. And at the end of the day, you find that it's the right thing to do. You know, people want to be proud of where they work. They want to be included. They don't want to feel like they're on an island. And I think we've done a terrific job with the women in our organization in terms of the progress. We won the Catalyst Award this year. We've done an average job with multicultural. So we still have a long way to go there. But I would say it's definitely now in the heart of what we do and in the daily how we run the business rather than just check the box. I had asked her to recall one moment that sort of represented the success you've had there. And she mentioned right away your your raising of the pride flag uh, up front that stands at the forefront for her as a sign of, of where Boston Scientific is headed and what you've accomplished. Yeah, yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, you don't think it's a big deal, but it's a really big deal to uh, to be a strong ally. It's a big deal for our LGBTQ plus community. And it also shows it's important. And I remember eight or so years ago when we were more out there in terms of our support there, there was, you know, you get a few bad emails. Of course, they're always undisclosed who they're from, but it's important for our, our employees and our team. And now it's important for shareholders, but that's not why we did it. We did it long before it became in vogue to do it. Fantastic. All right. Well, I appreciate your, your time and uh, your thoughts and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Okay. Thank you very much. All right, Chris Newmarker, now is the time that we tell folks uh, how to find us on social media. Hey, you can find me on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, just like a new marker. And you can find me on uh, on Twitter at Newmarker. That's excellent. I am on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi. I am on MedTech. I'm sorry. I'm on Twitter at MedTech, Tom. And I'm also on Instagram now. I've been posting stuff there. Again, I had an account for a while, but that's also at MedTech, Tom. So, if you want to see the uh, the kind of beer I enjoyed yesterday on my birthday yeah. or my, the birthday cake my son made for me, or uh, we'll post some MedTech stuff there as well. But uh, find me on Instagram at MedTechTom. Happy and, birthday, uh, please, man. Uh, thank you, buddy. It's, uh, it's, it's a good yeah. one. I, I, I'm fine with birthdays. So uh, if you would please share this podcast on your social media channels and connect, of course, to Chris and myself. Get a like, follow, subscribe. Absolutely. Please like, follow, and or subscribe to this podcast so you do not miss this podcast, Device Talks Weekly. If you subscribe to, to the Device Talks Podcast Network, you'll also receive Striker Talks. We will have a Striker Talks out in probably two weeks. Uh, I had a delay on my end. And you'll also receive Intuitive Talks. And we, as I said at the top, we'll have an Intuitive Talks out next week. It'll come out on Friday in place of Device Talks Weekly because I will be off. So we're going to take a break from the podcast, but you'll have an intuitive talks podcast to listen to. Wait, you're taking a vacation? Come on, man. (laughs) Even though this job is nothing but joy, uh, I still need a little time. Yes. So, uh, and of course, uh, please do subscribe to Medtronic Talks, the Medtronic Talks podcast. All of these, uh, the Device Talks Network and Medtronic Talks are available on any podcast channel, Amazon, Google, Spotify, 
So uh, please do uh, subscribe. We don't want you missing any uh, great insights or news. Uh, again, that is a wrap. We won't be won't be here next week, but you'll have an intuitive talks. And uh, tune in in two weeks. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast waiting for you. Hey, enjoy July 4th. Grill something out. Thank you.